Veritas Mizzou podcast. Veritas is the college ministry of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. Our greatest hope is to see more and more college students believe that Jesus is more. To get connected, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you're encouraged by this message. It's a great scene, isn't it? It comes from the TV show, The Chosen, and if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend you doing so. Now, I'll admit, uh, maybe I shouldn't say this because I'm a pastor, I'm not usually into Jesus-y TV shows. Uh, This one's really good. You should watch it. Uh, But anyways, uh, John chapter 2, verse 11, the last verse in the passage that we're looking at tonight, John says to us that, that what Jesus did there at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, that that scene that we just watched, Jesus turning water into into wine, it was the first of his signs. Now, what exactly does that mean, the first of his signs? What's a sign? Or maybe more importantly, what does a sign do? Well, a sign usually points us to something, doesn't it? It reveals something that we need to know. And of course, the same is true in the Gospel of John. In fact, miraculous signs are a prominent theme in John's gospel. But that's something that these signs point to. It's, it's not a something, it's a someone. And that someone is Jesus. You see, in other words, in the gospel of John, signs, there's something about them. There's, there's something about them that, that tells us who Jesus is, which if you remember, if you were with us here last week, that's the entire point of John's gospel. Look again at John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Son of God. Everything I've written is so that you would believe Jesus is God. And that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So, so there's something about these miracles, these particular signs that, that John records for us in his gospel. They're not random. They're not an accident. No, John gives us these signs of Jesus for a particular reason because they have a particular purpose. Now, I, I know from talking to some of you that, that miracles, they, they raise lots of questions, especially those of us that, that tend to be skeptics, that, that tend to have doubts. It's okay to have doubts. But with respect to miracles, know this, that uh, in the Gospel of John, miracles are comparatively rare. They're comparatively rare. It's not like we turn a page and get a miracle. No, in, in 21 chapters, that's the length of John, we get seven or eight, depending on how you count. So relatively speaking, in the Gospel of John, miracles are comparatively rare. Even rarer when you consider the entire Bible as a whole. From Genesis to Revelation, miracles are somewhat rare. Miracles are extremely rare in the experience of most people throughout the history of the world. 
I say that because I know some of us get tripped up sometimes on miracles. And, and I want to also say that, yes, Jesus did miracles, but he honestly didn't do them that often, at least that, as far as we know. Now, I say that because it means that, that when he did, when John records these signs, these miracles, he, he does so for a purpose. And tonight, I think that begs the question, what was it? Why did Jesus turn water into wine? Maybe more importantly, what does Jesus turning water into wine reveal about himself? And what does that have to do in, with you and me? Well, to get our answers, we have to first make sure that we really understand the problem. Because though it might not seem obvious to us on the surface, their problem, the problem that the people in the first century at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, their problem is actually our problem. Back to the story, picking up John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. They have no more wine. The problem seems obvious, right? The party's gone dry, and nobody likes a dry party. But the thing is, running out of wine, it wasn't just inconvenient. No, it was a major social faux pas. See, in Jewish culture at the time, wedding celebrations, they, they, they didn't last hours like we're used to them lasting, right? They, they lasted days. And the host of the wedding, the, the groom and his family, they would have been uh, expected. It was their responsibility to provide food and, and drinks, including wine, for, for the entire celebration, sometimes lasting a whole week. And so to run out of wine before the celebration was over, it would have been a social disaster of sorts, something that brought great shame and embarrassment and in some cases, lasting consequences to the groom and his family. And so to run out of wine, though it might not seem so, it was actually a really big deal. And no doubt, Jesus' mother knew this, right? Because they run out of wine, and what does she do? She turns to Jesus and says they have no more wine. And in turning to Jesus, it's obvious that she expects something from him. What do you think that it is that she expected? When she turns to Jesus, what do you think she was expecting in that moment? Was she expecting Jesus to do a miracle? Maybe. I mean, she's his mother, she had the inside track. Maybe she knew something, maybe. But put yourselves in her shoes for a second. As, as far as we know, the pulling together all the information that we have from other gospels, her husband Joseph, at this point, it seems like is, is gone. He's been out of the picture for a while. The last we hear of Joseph, Jesus was 12 years old. Now he's about 30. And so it seems likely that, that Joseph has died. And in the first century, when dad is gone, the oldest son becomes protector. The oldest son becomes provider of the family. And so Jesus, in this case, would have been the provider, would have been the protector of his mother. And so it's natural, it makes sense, that when a problem arises, Mary's natural instinct, her first response is to turn to her son and tell him the problem. They have no more wine. And I think in doing so, essentially saying to him, Hey, spare them from the embarrassment. Spare them from the shame and consequences coming their way. But really, that shame 
And that embarrassment and those consequences, whatever they would have been, was only part of the actual problem because there's actually something much deeper, something less obvious going on in this story. See, as is often the case with Jesus, there's something below the surface. There's more to the story. And that more to the story is not simply the fact that they're out of wine, it's what the wine itself represents. See, in Jewish thought, wine was a symbol of great joy, a symbol of celebration and happiness. And so to have wine was, well, to be happy. It's why in one of the central texts of rabbinic Judaism, you'll find the words, there is no rejoicing save the wine. There's no rejoicing without wine. Maybe some of you are saying amen to that, you and my wife both. But you see, rejoicing in wine, well-being in wine, celebration in wine, happiness in wine, in that culture, and for that matter, for many cultures, those things go hand in hand. Rejoicing, celebration, well-being, satisfaction, wine. But there's a problem. They have no more wine. They have no more wine. Or maybe we could say, they have no more joy. They have no more rejoicing. They have no more celebration. They have no more happiness. Seen in that light, their problem is actually much more serious than simply being out of wine. They need more wine. It's not just their problem, though, is it? It's our problem, too. It's our problem, too, because that reality, that phrase, those five words, they have no more wine. I think those words fine point something that's true of, of all of us in here and every human being that's ever existed. We're all looking for more wine. We're all looking for more wine, something to make us happy, something to bring us joy, something to give us a sense of well-being and comfort and satisfaction. We all want more wine. Why? Lots of reasons, I suppose. One that comes to mind, I, uh, years ago, I was watching a late night talk show uh, back when that was a thing, which has probably never been a thing for you because I'm old. Uh, I was watching a late night talk show and there was a comedian uh, on it and he was uh, doing a bit. Uh, it was funny, smart, um, witty, and uh, it was pretty good. And so he's doing this bit on, on why, we're, why we distract ourselves with busyness and yada, yada, yada. And, and it's pretty good. And in the middle of it, though, he gets kind of serious. I mean, he's still joking, but, but he's serious enough to, um, you know, kind of make you think. And, and he said something, a couple lines that, that really stuck with me. I, I think maybe I've shared before, uh, but if not, this is, this is what he says. So in the middle of this bit uh, about why we distract ourselves, why we busy ourselves, why all these things, he says this. He says, underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, that forever empty. You know, that, that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're all alone. It's all for nothing and you're all alone. I'm not going to wake you up at night, right? It's a bleak outlook, isn't it? It's a bleak outlook on life, an outlook that says that the reason that, that we're all looking for more wine, the reason that we're all wanting more wine, the reason that we're all needing more wine is, well, because underneath everything in our lives, there's this emptiness. There's this growing sense of, of deep, forever emptiness that in reality, none of us wants to deal with. 
Maybe you're here tonight. Maybe you're listening to this later or watching online, and, and that's where you're at. Maybe you haven't been in Columbia long. Maybe you've been here for a while, but you're starting maybe for the first time to get a sense of that emptiness, that forever emptiness, whatever it is. And you're starting to realize that what you're doing with that emptiness, you're, you're busying yourself looking for more wine, constantly searching, doing whatever it is that brings you joy, that brings you happiness just in that moment. But of course, in one sense, that's, that's all of us, right? Because we all want happiness, don't we? We all want happiness. I mean, who here doesn't want to be happy? None of us. We all do. It's the American dream. We, we pursue happiness. We orient our days and our weeks and our schedules around happiness. We, we do whatever feels good. We do whatever it is that makes us happy. We all want to live our best life now. All of us. We all want to be happy and in reality, why not? If our lives, if, if your life, if they're all for nothing and we're alone and stuck with a forever emptiness, why not make the sole purpose of your life the pursuit of individual happiness? Why not? Why not live your best life now? Why not continue to find more wine, always looking, always searching, one thing after the next, constantly trying to find something, do something, be someone, be something, do anything that just makes you feel good and be happy? Why not? Maybe that hits a little close to home right now. Maybe not, but, but maybe it does. See, I think a lot of us here tonight listening online, I think a lot of us, and I've been here too, and so I get it, we're kind of stuck in a rhythm. We're stuck in this rhythm. It's, it's one party to the next. It's one night to the next, one relationship to the next. We're looking for the next experience. We're chasing status. We're chasing approval. We're chasing identity. We're doing whatever it is that makes us feel good and be happy in the moment. See, if that comedian's right, in your life, our life, my life, it's all for nothing. If we really are alone and stuck with forever empty, then distracting yourselves, distracting ourselves, trying to find more wine, seeking joy and happiness in people and in things, then it makes complete sense. To be honest, it makes complete sense. I completely get it. But what if he's wrong? What if that comedian isn't right at all? What if instead of, of meaninglessness, your life actually had a deep sense of purpose and a deep sense of meaning given to you by your creator? What if contrary to what he said, the word really did become flesh to be with you so that you wouldn't ever have to be alone? What if instead of having to live with a deep forever kind of emptiness, you knew and experienced the reality that you've been uniquely and specifically made by your creator in his image by Jesus for Jesus? What would that change about your life if that's what you believed, if that were true? What would you stop chasing? What would you stop doing? What would you stop looking for if those things were true? See, see, ask yourself, what is the wine? Be honest. What's the wine that you're looking to in your life right now to find happiness? 
What's that thing that you're looking to to give you joy? See, I promise you, it's going to run out eventually. It's going to run out. See, what I want you to hear tonight, and if this is the only thing you hear, then hear this. Jesus has the only wine that you'll ever need, and apart from him, you'll always run dry. Jesus has the only wine that you'll ever need, and apart from him, you'll always run dry. You'll always run out of wine apart from Jesus. And Jesus knows that. Jesus knows that, which is why I think he does what he does. Pick back up in verse 4. They have no more wine. This is how he responds to his mom. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, let me pause here for a second because uh, we just heard Jesus say woman to his mom, and I realized that for some of us, maybe a lot of us, uh, that doesn't sound cool, Jesus, right? You just said woman to your mom. You sound like a jerk. Uh, in his context, in his day, that's not as bad uh, as it sounds uh, to us. It's not as unkind. It's not as rude. It's not as harsh. It's certainly not an endearing thing that Jesus is doing. So I wouldn't advocate trying it out on your mom, calling her woman. Uh, but what he's doing is he's trying to create some separation. He's trying to distance himself from her a bit. It's almost as if in this particular moment, he's responding to her not as son, but as Lord. And he says to her, my hour's not yet come. See, Jesus isn't ready to fully reveal himself. He's not ready to fully reveal who he really is, at least not on someone else's terms, even if that someone else is his own mother. And yet, it's fascinating, she doesn't give up. She's not to be deterred, because look at what she says. She says, okay, so she talks to the servants, and she says to the servants, yeah, do whatever he tells you to do. So Jesus says, what does this have to do with me my hour's not yet come. And she says, okay, yeah, servants, go do whatever he tells you to do. We can, we can move past that pretty quickly, but I think it's a beautiful picture of faith. I think it's a beautiful picture of, of trust in Jesus. Because see, she didn't know exactly what Jesus was gonna do. She couldn't have known, and yet she knew that he'd do something. She told the servants to do whatever he told them to do. She knew that he was going to do something but regardless of what that something was, regardless of what the outcome would be, she seems pretty content to leave it in his hands. She seems pretty content to say, whatever he's going to do, it's going to be okay. It's kind of how faith works in our life, isn't it? We bring something to Jesus. Maybe it's our lives. We bring it to Jesus, and, and if we're honest, sometimes we don't really know how things are going to go. We don't really know what Jesus is up to. We don't really know what he's doing in our lives, what he's going to do in our lives. And it's because of our relationship with him. It's because of our experience with him. Remember, we're not brains on a stick, right? We're not letting go and letting God. We're not closing our eyes and making some leaf. No, that's not what faith is. No, faith is having a relationship with Jesus and being able to leave whatever it is in his hands because we trust him. Because we trust him. Is that, is that the kind of faith that you have? The kind of faith that says, Jesus, I don't, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I trust you. Jesus, I don't really know why that thing happened in my life, but I trust you. 
Jesus, I have no idea right now what you're doing, why we're spread out in an auditorium, why I can't really go to class and hang out with my friends and do the things that I want, but I trust you. See, do you have a faith that's willing to trust Jesus even when, especially when, you aren't sure what he's doing? You aren't sure what he'll do? You aren't sure how he'll respond? His mom did. Do whatever he tells you, his mother said to the servants. Moving on, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. Now, now just to be clear, just to give us kind of an idea of, of what's going on, six stone jars, we saw them in the video earlier, and each of these stone jars, they hold 20 to 30 gallons of water. And so what we're talking about now is, is collectively 120 to 180 gallons of water turned to wine in an instant. I'm, uh, apparently, I'm like my kids. Uh, I need pictures to help. And so uh, here's a picture, I think. Yeah, there's a picture of, of roughly 30 gallons of wine, uh, one of the, the jars that, that John mentioned. Uh, there's about five bottles of, in a gallon, and so that's roughly 150 bottles of wine. Now, multiply that times six, because that's what Jesus did, and you get this. That's about how much wine Jesus made just like that in an instant. Now, I get that a lot of us here tonight, we've heard this story dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times, and it's become somewhat mundane. Yeah, yeah, Jesus turned water into wine. But others of us here tonight, maybe it's not that it's necessarily brand new, but it's newer, and this is all kind of surprising. Regardless of where you're at, it, it shouldn't be surprising to any of us that, that Jesus, the creator, the sustainer of, of all that there is, of all things, the one who holds the earth in the palm of his hands, it shouldn't be surprising that that Jesus, Jesus the creator, that he can move molecules and atoms and change the basic biochemical reality of a substance in a moment's notice without problems. Of course he can because Jesus is God, and that's what he did. Verse eight, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you... You have saved the best till now. See, in those days, it was apparently customary to serve the best wine first so that the wedding guests could still appreciate the, the taste of the good wine before they had had too much to drink. It makes sense. But what we see here is that Jesus, the wine that Jesus provides, 120 to 180 gallons of water turned into wine, the best aged wine, the master, the host says it's without comparison. It's without comparison. You see, the wine that Jesus provides, note that he provided it. It was something they couldn't provide for themselves. The wine that Jesus provides, it's unqualifiedly superior 
It's completely superior. Now, that's not the point, right? The point isn't necessarily the quality of the wine. The point is what the wine points to. The point is what the wine reveals. And what the wine reveals is who Jesus is, the best wine saved for last. See, what this story tells us is that Jesus is the best aged wine that never runs dry, the only wine that that brings true joy and lasting happiness and real satisfaction and well-being. And so whether you know it or not, Jesus is the wine that you've been looking for your entire life. See, whether you know it or not, Jesus is the wine, the thing that, that gives you joy, the thing that gives you happiness and satisfaction and contentment and well-being. That's who Jesus is, and you've been looking for him your entire life, whether you know it or not. See, this, this event, this wedding at Cana, it's, it's, it's interesting because on the one hand, it, it confirms what prophets of the Old Testament had long expected, long anticipated. A day, Amos, one of the prophets, says, when new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. In other words, a, a day when God's people would be rescued from exile, from the exile of sin, brokenness would be undone, the world would be restored as it was meant to be. And so on the one hand, it confirms what, it was, what was expected, but on the other, it anticipates what lies ahead because this wedding also foreshadows another wedding. It, it foreshadows a day of a great heavenly wedding a wedding at the end of time with Jesus and his bride, the church. And this wedding, it's not just a wedding for people in Cana of Galilee. No, it's for people from every tribe and tongue and nation, all those who belong to him. And this wedding celebration, it's not a celebration that will last days or weeks. No, it's a celebration of great joy that will last an eternity. It'll last an eternity. As the music team comes up, that's what Jesus is inviting you into tonight. That's what he's inviting you into. He's inviting you to stop looking, to stop chasing, to stop running after, stop searching for, stop trying to find other wine. And instead, drink from the best wine saved for last, the best aged wine that never runs dry. See, what is it that you're looking to for joy right now? What is it? What is it that you're looking to for happiness right now? See, what you're really looking for, you might not know it, but, but what you're really looking for is Jesus. See, it's interesting. When, when the disciples, when they, when they encountered Jesus, the, the last verse, verse 11, the very end, when they encountered him, when they saw what he had done, when they recognized who he was, they believed. They believed in him. And Jesus changed their life. Jesus transformed their life. And guess what? If he can do that in their life, he can do it in yours too. If he can do that in their life, he can do it in yours too. See, what I want you to hear tonight is you don't have to keep looking. You don't have to keep searching. You can stop chasing, running, looking for 
other wine. Jesus is that wine that you're looking for, the best wine saved for last. And with Jesus, you'll never run dry. And so how do, we, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to this good news that Jesus is the best wine that, that will never run dry? Well, I think one of the best ways to respond is the way that Revelation 19 verse seven says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Veritas Mizzou podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other people find our content so that they can be encouraged too. Most importantly, to get connected to Veritas, check out our weekly meeting on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. on Mizzou's campus. For specific details about where we meet, how to join a small group, or more information about Veritas, visit us online at veritasmizzou.com. To stay in the loop with what we're up to, follow Veritas Mizzou on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks again for listening.